Well, what a great honor it is. This is the first time that I have preached in this chapel. And if you knew the history behind me in this chapel and how at the very beginning of Tyndale moving in here or considering here, for me to be here today is an emotional one. For I actually had lunch with the nuns in a room outside when it was still theirs. And I looked up and I saw the mighty cross that was here. And when we were talking about whether or not this would be a good place for a university and young people like yourselves, when we saw the cross, we knew this is exactly what this place should be. It's a great honor and a great privilege to be here. I was introduced not long ago, and in fact, a great deal was made of the fact that I'm an IndyCar chaplain, and somebody came up to me and whispered in my ear before we began, we said, we hope that your sermon is as quick as the cars that go around the track. So I will keep that in mind, uh, but it's a great privilege to be here. But I don't know about you this morning, but... I think our city, our world, our continent has a heavy heart. And this morning I was in touch with one of the rabbis in my neighborhood in Toronto, which has the largest of all the synagogues. And we were discussing how, as people of faith, we can come together. I think it would be nice before I proclaim the word if we just had a moment of silence for those who lost their lives. Let us pray. Lord, wherever there is hatred, may there be love. Where there is discrimination, may there be your open arms. Where there is violence, may there be peace. And in all things, may the world honor you. In Christ's name, amen. I'd receive very clear instructions. Andrew, you're to go to Livingston Congregational Church on Sunday morning, and you will be the first minister there from the college where I was attending. And you're to establish a relationship with the people, and you're to be there for six months. Prepare in advance. They're looking forward to seeing you. So I got in my car, I prepared myself immaculately, as student ministers do. I armoralled my Bible just so it had a particular sheen to it. I prepared my sermon and exegeted it right to the very bottom of the text. I was ready. I even washed my car. And I drove up to my new church. But it was 1979. It was South Africa, and I was going to a black church, and I'm a white minister. And I realized as I drove through the township that I'd never visited before, it seemed as if I was in a foreign land, 
The shacks and the poverty were overwhelming. I drove around for about half an hour looking for my church till finally I became exasperated and I saw three boys kicking a soccer can around. And so I wound down the window and I said, boys, can you tell me where Livingston Congregational Church is? And they looked at me and they laughed. And they said, you must be the new pastor. I said, yes, I am. They said, you've driven past it about five times. It's over there. And as I got out of my car and I walked into what was supposedly a church, I realized the floor was of dirt, the pews smelt of burning or rotting wood. I later found out they'd been donated by a white church that had had a fire. The women were all seated on one side, the men were all seated on the other, and I walked down the aisle because I was late, and all the deacons were sat behind the pulpit. There was an old piano that was out of tune playing something, and I ascended to the pulpit. And the pulpit was really an old beer barrel that had been cut in half, and on very humid days could be quite inspirational, I'm told. And so I stood behind there and I looked out in this congregation that I'd never seen before in my life. And I looked at what I'd prepared, my biblical text, my beautiful shiny Bible, and it all seemed totally irrelevant. Irrelevant. So I read the text, I think it was from Romans. We sang a couple of hymns, mainly by John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And finally I got up to preach and I realized that the sermon I had prepared was absolutely useless. I looked out onto these faces who were there in great expectation, but faces that you knew were living with the hardship of being black in South Africa under apartheid. And so I put my sermon to one side and I just simply said, I'm sorry folks, your life is terrible and I have very little to say to you. And then I went on and I had a political spiel about how terrible apartheid was and how dreadful the world was and how terrible I felt coming to them and how over the next six months I wanted to learn for them. And I went on and on until finally one of the deacons tapped me on the shoulder and he says, come here. I've never had that happen in a sermon before. Come here. Except by the Almighty, but never by a person. And the deacons took me to a room out back, and they changed my life. They said, Andrew, we have brought you here to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that life is tough. We don't need you to tell us. We know that apartheid's unjust. We don't need you to instruct us as to how. We have called you here to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, please go back to the college now. But if you're willing to do it, we are eager to worship with you. The choice is yours. told off, humbled, 
terrified. I went back to that pulpit and I preached the text that I had preached from and prepared. And everyone at the end embraced me and for the next six months until I was forced to leave them, there was love and there was compassion and there was joy. And I realized what they needed more than anything else was God. And my job was to proclaim God's word, pure and simple. I don't know what it was that hung me up. I don't know whether I was just full of guilt because I was white. I don't know whether it was that I was ashamed of the gospel and didn't think that it had any power. But either way, I was unsure what to say in what was clearly a broken, divided, divisive, and dangerous world. Does the gospel really have a place in such a world? I ask that question because I think in our day and age, while we're not facing the same confrontation in our land as they do in the days of apartheid in South Africa, we nevertheless are in this world with shifting sands and uncertain foundations. We're in a world where clearly daily we're bombarded by violence and we see the injustices of the world and we say, is there anything in our message as Christians, is there anything about the good news of Jesus Christ that is going to change the world in which we find ourselves? Well, I turn for inspiration as I have after that very first day in Macanuscop in the Eastern Cape to the passage that was read beautifully from the book of Acts. If there is an image from the Bible for our day and age and for you as students and young people, it is the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Once again, a lesson from Africa. The story is very simple. Philip, who is one of the disciples, has been called by an angel and by the Holy Spirit to go to a very dangerous place. He's asked to go to the road south of Jerusalem on the way to Gaza. This is probably the route that was talked about when the psalmist said, I go through the valley of the shadow of death. It was probably the very same place where Jesus had in mind the good Samaritan and the robbers who beat people on the side of the road. It was a dangerous place. And God called Philip into that dangerous place. But not only did he call him to go there, he called him to go and see a particular person who was there. And this person was an Ethiopian. And he was not only an Ethiopian, he was a eunuch. And eunuchs were people who were deliberately castrated for the sake of serving within the courts. And so he is sent to go and bring the word of God and to have an encounter in a dangerous place with a foreigner and he sees this chariot. And in this chariot there is this eunuch. And he is in a chariot which tells you that he is wealthy. He's working for the court of the queen in Ethiopia. 
And some of the great uh, Mariatic texts talk about these queens of what was known as Cush as being very, very powerful and very wealthy. So even as the treasurer, he would be overseeing great sums of money. He was a powerful person. And Philip encounters him. And he goes up to him. Now, we are told that this Ethiopian had just come from the temple in Jerusalem and was on his way home. And he would be doing this because there were Ethiopian Jews, as there still are Ethiopian Jews. We don't think, honestly, of of Jews as being black and of being African, but they are and they were. They are known often as Beta Israel the second Israel. And even in the word and the law of return to Israel in 1977, they were acknowledged as being part of Israel. And this Jewish community from Ethiopia was very strong and very faithful. So he had come to the temple in Jerusalem, but he must have come with a heavy heart. It was difficult for him to come. Why? Because in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says that anyone who is mutilated is not allowed into the temple of God, not allowed into the sacred place. But then again in Isaiah 11, 11, if you are mutilated, as long as you obey the Sabbath, you're allowed into the temple. He must have been confused. And whatever had happened in the temple, we don't know. But we do know that on his way home, he's encountered by Philip. And here comes one of the great meetings in the whole of the Bible. Because he is reading out loud a passage from the Bible. The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53. I want to read it to you again because it's in this very text. And it goes like this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Who knows what was going through the Ethiopian's mind? He would have no descendants, would he? And so Philip comes up to him and says, what do you think this is about? And the Ethiopian doesn't know. He's troubled, I think. He's reading this and he says, who does the prophet have in mind when he's speaking like this? In other words, he's probably asking, is he thinking about me? And my suffering right here, right now, as a eunuch in a foreign land who's just been to the temple, who's going home to the queen to once again be a servant? Or is he talking about something else? And at that very moment, Philip connects the powerful texts from the Old Testament with Jesus of Nazareth. At that very moment, he sees his opportunity to talk about Jesus to talk about the good news, to introduce him to someone who had died to take away the sins of the world, 
Someone who had come to redeem and to save the lost. Someone who you don't have to worry about having descendants because he is the one who brings you into the eternal house of God. In other words, he introduces him to the cross. And this is part of our tradition. From John Calvin to Martin Luther and others, it is to see Christ even in the passages of the Old Testament. To see them all through the lens of the person and the good news of Jesus Christ. And whatever happened in Philip's heart and soul and mind, because we're not told, we do realize that he was transformed and changed because he asked to be baptized. But the key point is, at the moment of that Ethiopian's great need, Philip shared with him the good news of Jesus Christ. And he changed him. And the good news changed him. And that's what the good news does. Not long ago, I was in a corner store in my neighborhood, and my corner store is mainly run by people who are from Bangladesh and from India and Pakistan. And over the years, I've developed a great relationship, particularly with the young men who are working in the store. And we have one great thing in common, apart from soccer and Manchester United, God bless them, apart from them, we loved cricket. Do not get a Pakistani talking about cricket for long because they just go. They love it so much. And we were arguing and we were debating about the Australian cricket team. And I'm a supporter, of course, of the England cricket team. And, and, and the fact that one of their players had been fired because he had done something wrong. And the question arose, should he be forgiven or not forgiven? Now, you know where this is going, don't you? And so these young men of diverse religious backgrounds, one Hindu, one Zoroastrian, and the other two who are Muslim and I, a Christian, are talking about how do we deal with people when they have gone astray. And so I began to talk, as I would naturally, about Christ. And I talked about the forgiving power of Christ. The need for confession and repentance, yes, but ultimately forgiveness and redemption is at the heart of my faith. And you know what was fascinating is the more I talked about Christ and this forgiveness and this overwhelming grace, the more they wanted to know about what I believed. I have seen these guys for years, and not once have we talked about our religious traditions. But this broke at a moment, this moment of need, this moment to talk about forgiveness, was the open door, the open door to talk about the good news of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, I felt like Philip. I felt like Philip because I realized that there is tremendous power in the gospel, that we should not be ashamed of the gospel, and that the more, in fact, we point to the person and the work and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the more people are attracted to their faith in God. One of the saddest stories in my time in South Africa was 
a relationship that I developed with a young man called Denton. And Denton was from a township called Mamalodi, which was between Pretoria and Johannesburg. And Denton I got to know quite well at a Christian conference. But I didn't know the Denton that had been. I only knew the Denton that I saw after his commitment of faith. But Denton told me his story. For years, he had belonged to the military wing of the African National Congress, the group that was eventually led by Nelson Mandela. But he was a young radical at the time, was Denton, and he belonged to the Umkonto Suizui, the military wing. And he lived in the cloak of darkness. And one of the things that Denton was challenged to do was to hold trials, get this, for young men in particular, who they felt were conspiring with the government, the white government, and to execute them. This is the underside of South African history. And Denton was part of a group that did what they call necklacing. Any of you heard of that? Necklacing is when they put a rubber tire around the neck of someone, fill it with gasoline and with newspapers and set it alight. And it was a practice that was going on in the very dangerous townships. Denton was an executioner. Until one day, one day, he was seen to be executing a young man and when the young man turned around and had his hood taken off, he realized it was his cousin. And in that very moment, that very moment in staring into his cousin's eyes, Denton said to those who were around him who were following his lead, put the necklace on me. This boy is innocent. Put it on me. And when the horror of putting a necklace on their leader hit their eyes and their minds, they couldn't go through with it. They couldn't do it. And they turned away. Days afterwards, Denton, for one reason or another, had a friend sent to him who was a Christian, who was part of a group called Africa Enterprise. And I think you have had a former leader of A&E speak in this chapel years ago, Michael Cassidy. And this young man shared with Denton the good news of Jesus Christ. And he shared with him the story of the cross. And he shared with him what in essence is in Isaiah 53. That the one who suffers for us, the one who is on our behalf, the one who died for the redemption of the world, is none other than the Son of God himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And when Denton realized that it was this God that it was this Lord who he said 
led him to offer his own life. He said, for the rest of my days, I commit myself, heart and soul, to him. My friends, if we don't see the power of the gospel, if we do not take into our heart and our souls and our minds the opportunity to share that with the world, then we are doing the world no favors. We are doing those who are asking questions no favors. We are doing nothing for the brokenness of the world. But we have good news. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ still changes everything. And an Ethiopian eunuch from Africa knew exactly that. May we go forward with that faith in our hearts. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, in moments of uncertainty, as when Joshua was going into the promised land but did not know where it was, you said these words to him, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, wherever you may go. May we go in that truth. In the name of the Father, and of the glorious Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.